in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, social critics, or even historians, will tell you that this world, when we, when we think about this world, in some ways the world is framed in, in a psychological framework. Now, you don't need to read their books to, to, to get this point. Let me just give you a few examples of how this works itself out, why, why this world is sort of framed currently in psychological kind of categories. Just think about work. Think about your career, your vocation. For, for hundreds and hundreds of years, your job, your vocation, your career, and, and, and if you were satisfied with your job, well, th- that job satisfaction was based on if it provided for your family. Now, job satisfaction is based on a sort of inner feeling, right? If you could like swipe like to your job. Or even think about how language has changed these days, right? Uh, we used to talk about like what's wrong with this world. We used to say, oh, well, it's sin. We're sinful people. But now have you noticed now we say things like, oh, we're broken people, which is true. I'm not to deny that there isn't truth there, but, but, but that's, that's less the language of the Bible and more the language of the counselor or the psychologist. Or even think about sports. Uh, you know, I played a lot of sports growing up. I can't think of a practice in my life where I didn't get yelled at by a coach. Right? I remember my football coach calling me soft. Oh, it made me so mad. I mean, he was right. I was soft. It made me mad. Right? I don't even know if you could call someone soft on the football field anymore. I'm not even so sure coaches can yell. After all, we, we're really concerned about the, the, the emotional well-being, the, the self-esteem of the athlete. Or even think about our identities. Our identities have been formed, who we are as people have been formed through a a sort of psychological framework. Think about gender identity. Gender identity used to to be based on your biology, and now it's on the subjective internal feelings at any particular moment. Our world has been sort of laced or or spiked or, or marinated in a sort of psychological Framework. It's about what you're feeling subjectively, your, your emotions. Now, what do, Christ, what do Christians, or what does Christianity have to say about our emotions, our feelings, our, our kind of psychological framework? That's sort of the knot that we need to untangle when we come to the Psalms. Because certainly our emotions, our feelings, our sort of, our, our mental capacities, those matter. But on the one hand, we we could become a slave to our feelings, our emotions. They could reign and rule our lives. Or, on the other end, we could just dismiss them. Say, you know, emotions or feelings, well, they're just a, a a nuisance. We should just kind of shush them. Either way, the Bible speaks in a much more nuanced way as it relates to how we can think through our emotions. 
To start off the new year, we've been studying a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. From Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These were psalms that pilgrims would sing as they would take their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year for various feasts throughout the year. You can think of them as a a Spotify playlist. They were the sort of, it was a, a discipleship curriculum for the pilgrim as they went on their journey. Songs to help them make sense of their lives. Songs to put words to their emotions. Isn't that what a song does, right? right? When you're in a good mood, you listen to one song. When you're in a sad mood, you listen to another song. That's what these are. They, they, they put words to our various emotions. And you might have noticed that each psalm expresses, uh, with some nuance, various emotions. And then how to make sense of those emotions. I think it's no wonder that John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Psalms, he said this, that the Psalms are like an anatomy of all of the parts of the soul. Isn't that good? Isn't that true? Right? The Psalms are the anatomy of all of the parts of the soul. You, you read enough Psalms and you realize that they, there isn't a, an emotion or a feeling that you've experienced that the psalmist doesn't touch. Grief, sorrow, pain, suffering, joy, happiness, just, just that, that feeling of perplexity, abandonment, so much more. All of our emotions which, which just kind of come upon our souls, which sometimes even agitate our souls, they make their way in the book of Psalms. So on the one hand, we could say that the, the book of Psalms teach us not to be afraid of our emotions or our feelings. They teach us that we need to express our feelings and our emotions. But then the Psalms do something else. They give us a theological framework to make sense of our feelings and emotions. And that's what we find here this morning. The big idea that's behind me is simply this. That contempt, and I know that contempt can be painful, but but as painful as contempt can be, contempt can be eclipsed by a vision of God and an experience of his mercy. Now, this psalm, Psalm 123, actually, like many psalms, almost works in reverse. I don't know if you noticed when Phil read this, but, but the problem is stated not up front, but at the end, right? Actually, the solution to the problem is at the beginning, and the problem is at the end. So we're going to kind of turn the psalm on its head, and we're going to study it backwards. So first, go to, go to verse 3. This will give us some context to the problem that this pilgrim is experiencing. Verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. There's the context. There's the problem. The author, the the pilgrim, is experiencing scorn and contempt. Now, we don't know many of the details, do we? We don't know why this pilgrim is experiencing scorn and contempt. 
We don't even know where it's coming from. I mean, it could be coming from sort of the, the, the surrounding nations, right? Pagans who are, are belittling and scorning this pilgrim. That, that could be the case. Or it could be coming from within the people of God, maybe some religious hypocrites who are belittling this faithful pilgrim. We really don't know. We don't know where or what this scorn is. But we do know and have experienced what it feels like, don't we? And all we know is that, that he has the feelings associated with being told that he's worthless. Now, scorn and contempt, right? There, there are two words there in the English. They're, they're synonyms. They're, they're basically getting at the same idea. So I'm going to use them interchangeably, so don't be confused. Right? There is some subtle nuance, but basically the, the, the idea is the same. When you have contempt, for someone, when you scorn someone, you, you, you say they're not worthy of your time or energy. It's laughing at them, mocking them, calling them a fool. It's humiliating someone, t- treating them with disrespect. And so three times this pilgrim points out that this is his life, right? This is his experience. He is experiencing scorn and contempt. He's the object of this. Now, this pilgrim and his experience, I think it reminds all of us that this is sometimes, not always, but we all experience scorn. We all, from time to time, experience contempt. Right? As, as certain as death and taxes, God's people will experience scorn. I, I remember one of my earliest experiences of this. I remember I was in high school. I was at like a lunch table. There was like a dozen of us having lunch. And uh, gender and sexuality came up as a topic. And there was a Christian in the group. It was not me, but there was a Christian. And it turned on him and someone said, well, what do you think as a Christian? And unashamedly, this Christian said, I believe, and he kind of articulated a a biblical Christian sexual ethic. And I'm telling you, the wolves smelled, you know, or the the shark smelled blood in the water, right? The wolves started surrounding this Christian. And the scorn and the contempt started coming. And I remember thinking, just as an outsider, although, you know, being a part of this, I just remember thinking, what an idiot this Christian is. Why doesn't he just keep his mouth? Shut. If he just wouldn't have said anything, he would have kept his reputation. But he couldn't, could he? He stood up for the faith, and he was condemned for the faith. I think of this sometimes when I'm getting a haircut. All right, you, you might not have this experience, but let me just get you in the psychological framework of me. I'm sitting at Great Clips, about to get a haircut, and I'm terrified that they're going to ask me what I do for a living. Okay, because I'm in a vulnerable position. I'm sitting there, and this person has clippers. And I'm like, if I tell them I'm a pastor, I don't know if an oops is going to come, right? So, so it's not just the high school. We, we all experience this, this fear that if we expose ourselves, it kind of explain around the water cooler, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. Oh, what's going to happen? Are we going to be mocked, laughed at, belittled? Now, some historically have called this persecution. 
And honestly, I've always kind of, kind of balked at that. I've always kind of pushed back at that. It just it hasn't tasted right when people have said, oh, that's persecution. Because when I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or when I hear about stories in Iran, I think, I don't want to belittle that experience. Like, I've got so good in contrast. But my, my wife was reading a, a story about Corey Ten Boom this past week, right? And I remember thinking, like, I'm not experiencing that at all. And so to kind of save and, and not belittle the, the plight of, of the, the suffering, persecuted church, I've always thought, no, 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 we, we're, we're not experiencing persecution here. But I learned something this week. Actually, uh, an author made a biblical connection that I'd just never seen before, and it relates, so let me share it with you. If you go to the book of Genesis, you have the story of Isaac and Ishmael. So Isaac is the son of promise. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is not the son of promise. And in Genesis 21, Ishmael mocks Isaac. Remember that story? Ishmael mocks, laughs at Isaac. He scorns him. He has contempt for him. Right? Ha ha ha, you're the son of promise. Whatever. And actually, Sarah, Abraham's wife, goes to Abraham and says, I want you to banish Ishmael and Hagar because he's belittling the son of promise. Now, if you go and flip over to the New Testament... In the book of Galatians, in chapter 4, Paul writes about Isaac and Ishmael. And he writes something really, really interesting I'd never seen before. Paul says this, quote, The son of the flesh, that's Ishmael, the son of the flesh persecuted the son born of the power of the spirit, that's Isaac. Paul views what Ishmael did to Isaac as a form of persecution. Now, as far as we can tell, Isaac never, or sorry, Ishmael never tried to imprison Isaac because he was the son of promise. He, he, as far as we know, he never like punched him or beat him up or tried to kill him. But Paul, interpreting Genesis 21, says that what was going on there, that mocking, that laughing, that contempt, that scorn, it's a form of persecution. It, it might not be physical warfare, but it's psychological warfare. And it's deadly nonetheless. Or even think of maybe Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, he, he, he says that contempt, right? Calling your neighbor a fool. Jesus says that it's even more dangerous than anger. Go, go there this week. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that, that contempt, calling your neighbor a fool, is even more dangerous than anger. It says it's in danger of the, the flames of hell. Now, being burned alive or being imprisoned for your faith is worse than being called the name or being laughed at. Okay? We can all say that. And at the same time, I don't think it does us any good to say that that being scorned, being mocked for following Jesus doesn't hurt, doesn't wound, isn't hard, and isn't a, a form of verbal persecution. That's how the Bible talks about it. And that's what our pilgrim is experiencing. Notice that twice the pilgrim says that, that he has had more than enough contempt. Twice he says it. Right? It's not just merely that he's experiencing contempt. Right? There's sort of like a, 
a level that we expect, right? Right? Okay, yeah, I can, can be laughed at this much. Not this pilgrim. Not this saint. He has more than enough. It's, it's risen to a level that he almost can't breathe. Right? Have you ever had that experience when you're, when you're at the ocean and you get hit by a big wave and you're kind of t- thrown around? And the ocean does what the ocean does, which means another wave's going to hit you and another and another and you're just disoriented? That's our pilgrim. He's being pummeled wave after wave, contempt after contempt after contempt, and it's disorienting to him. Now, contempt is not a good thing. It's a tragic thing. It's a hard thing. But God, even in the midst of contempt, God can still do some amazing things. Some, some of you might know the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentation, the author, Jeremiah, is watching the city he loves, Jerusalem, burn. He's seeing the people he loves being carted off into captivity. He's seeing everything that he loves and holds dear is just being gone. And in the midst of all of this, he sees God's enemies mocking God's people. And in chapter 3, Jeremiah writes a prayer. And if you read it, in the middle of it, Jeremiah prays that even in the midst of the scorn that's coming and that was being experienced by God's people, he says, and yet God is still working his sovereign purposes. God is promised that there will be a remnant. God has promised that he's going to use this. He's trusting God even when he's experiencing the hardship of scorn and contempt. So, so let me just encourage you this morning. If that's you, this past year, this past month, this past week, if it got right eerily silent and weird and awkward as your, as it, your Christian faith came up, well, let me just encourage you. God can still work in some amazing ways even in the midst of that experience. Or if you're a parent, I think this is one of those parenting things that are, that's kind of produces some anxiety or fear thinking about your, your child being ridiculed for their faith. Well, even in there, God works good. The, the pain of the arrows of those who, who shoot scorn and contempt against the hearts of men, women, and children, even those arrows, as painful as they are, they're not outside God's sovereign purposes. Good can come out of godless scorn. I think a good metaphor for a Christian, a Christian should be a velvet brick. That's what a Christian should be, a velvet brick. Solid, sturdy, but soft on the outside. And often God builds us and molds us into that sort of velvet brick as we experience scorn and contempt in this world. So, so take comfort. Be encouraged. You are not the only one who have experienced the awkwardness of following Jesus. We've got thousands of years of that. We are in a great cloud of surrounding witnesses who've all experienced that. But, but second, God, God's people, though they often experience contempt, what, what do you do when you're experiencing that sort of contempt or scorn? 
Like, where should you turn? What, what direction should you go? Where should you look for help? I recently um, was listening to a conversation of a well-known New York publisher talking to someone about why they got into publishing. Like, well, why they did what they did. It was fascinating. And this is what he said. This guy is not a Christian. He said, I'm not a Christian in this interview. And he said, I- I'm in publishing because when I was six years old, I read the Chronicles of Narnia. And since this day, I've been chasing that feeling that I got when I was six. Here's a man who knows something is wrong with the world, but he doesn't know where to look for a solution or an antidote. Here's a man who who felt the, the warmth and the compassion and the love and the forgiveness of Aslan, but he has no idea or he hasn't yet connected that love and warmth and compassion and acceptance and forgiveness with God's own son. He has no idea what direction to look. It's not enough in this world to know that you're sinful or broken or need help. Fundamentally, we need to know where to look for help. And this pilgrim tells us exactly where we need to look. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heaven. You might remember a few weeks back in Psalm 121. There the, the, the pilgrim is taking his journey to Jerusalem. And he says, I turn my eyes upon the hill. No longer. Just two Psalms later, this pilgrim, he turns his eye not to the hill. He turns his eye to the heavens. He turns his eyes to the Lord. And so this, this pilgrim's eyes kind of intuitively and instinctively moved in the direction of God. As he's experiencing this contempt, this scorn, this, this emotional disorientation, he, he looks to God. And then look at the description of God. It's twofold. He looks to God who is enthroned. Well, that's the language of reigning. It's, it's the language of the king. When all of us, including pilgrims, look out of the sort of horizon of our experience, it doesn't look like God is reigning, does it? It looks like lots of things are reigning. Lots of people are reigning. Those especially who wield scorn or contempt. I mean, maybe the perfect illustration is high school. Just think about it. Who rules and reigns the high school? It's never the quiet, good student who has straight A's, who's respectful. They don't rule the school. It's often the, the, the man or woman who wields some form of contempt or scorn. But the experience, our, our sort of horizon shouldn't be on our experiences. It should be on God. God is enthroned. He is king. He is sovereign. He's in control. And then notice, notice where he's enthroned. He's enthroned in the heavens. I mean, there there is nothing higher than the heavens. There is no throne higher than the heavens. He sits in judgment on all the universe. 
Have you ever noticed how Jesus taught us to pray? That first sentence? I had to memorize it when I was a kid. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, that's not a throwaway. That's not like a transition to get us into prayer. That is embedded with theological truths. God is in heaven. Meaning that God reigns. Meaning that he is king over kings. He is Lord over lords. And so when we pray to God, that little phrase is saying that we can pray in confidence because of who he is and what he controls. Right? God is not small. God is bigger, better. God is badder than anything and anyone. Ever think about that when you just are praying? Just stop and think about who you're praying to. The creator of the universe. The ruler of all rulers. He who is king. And yet at the same time stoops down and listens to me when I pray about my frustrations when my kids don't eat vegetables. Just think about that. The God who created vegetables listens to my prayers about my kids not eating Brussels sprouts. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of access to God we have. He is at the one point, at the one time, he is transcendent, and at the other time, we can talk with him. We can pray, and he's bent towards us. He listens to us. He hears us as we pray. There is no ordinary prayer, is there? Every time we go to God in prayer, we should be pinching ourselves. The God of the universe can hear us. And he's not bored with us. I mean, have you ever been in those conversations when someone's sharing a story and it's like about people you don't care about and details you don't care about? You ever had that experience? God doesn't have that experience, does he? As we pray, as we fumble about our prayers, God listens. We pray to the God who is in heaven, enthroned in heaven. And this pilgrim, he's experiencing contempt. And he looks to God. He looks to God for help. Now, if you want to know, like, okay, well, what does that look like practically? Like, what does it look like to look to God who art in heaven for help when you're experiencing contempt? Verse 2. We have two illustrations, a feminine and a masculine illustration for what this looks like. Verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. So, so what does this look like? What, what does it look like to turn our eyes to God while experiencing the, the emotional chaos of scorn and contempt? It looks like a servant. It looks like a a servant who looks to their kind master for help. The the, the picture painted, I think, is a bit like a child going to their father. And the child going to their father asking for just a quarter to put in the, the gum machine. And then the child just staring at the father, waiting, knowing that the father is going to give it to him. As... They wait a few minutes, and then they see the father put his hand in his pocket and pull out a quarter. That's the sort of image. It's not the image of, oh, God might be merciful. No, 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 no. It's this servant is just 
staring, or staring at the master, knowing that mercy will come with some patience. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy. The mercy's coming. Just stare. Keep staring. Wait patiently because it's a coming. That's the God whom we look at. That's the God whose mercy we can take to the bank. Now, no, notice three times. Did you notice the pilgrim cries out for mercy? Three times. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Now, the word mercy, the, the idea of mercy, I mean, it comes up all over the place in your Bibles, right? You, you know that. And, and we could just define mercy and then apply it to our text. I want to do something different. I think, like jealousy, like, like so many words, th- those words are better understood when you put them in a story. Maybe a parable. So let me give you a parable. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to steal it from Luke chapter 10. It's a pretty famous parable. Jesus is talking to a lawyer. This lawyer, like all lawyers, I don't think there's any lawyers here, is trying to test him and trap Jesus, right? And this lawyer questions Jesus about how someone can can gain eternal life. And so Jesus then says, well, what does the law say? And the man says, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, that's exactly right. Go and do that and you'll have eternal life. But the lawyer, like all good lawyers, is kind of looking for a theological loophole, right? Okay, well, who is my neighbor then? Because that seems pretty exhausting and and I want the, the, the shortest route to heaven. So just tell me who my neighbor is. I'll love them and we'll call it a good day. And at that question, Jesus then gives his famous parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a man who's walking to Jericho, and he gets assaulted. He's left for dead. A priest comes by, notices him, but just walks on by. Then a Levite sees him, walks on by. And then the Samaritan found him. A Samaritan has compassion on him, bound up his wounds, took care of him, restored him, and got him back on his way. So Jesus finishes the parable and turns to the lawyer and asks, okay, so which one of these, the the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which one acted as a neighbor? He forces the lawyer's hand, and the lawyer answers correctly. But listen to how the lawyer answered. The lawyer said, The one who was a neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. Mercy looks like the Samaritan who came to someone, someone who was in need. It involves healing. It involves restoration. It involves wholeness. You want to know what what it looks like for, for someone to be merciful? Well, look at what the Samaritan does to the man. That's Mercy. Isn't that what our pilgrim is yearning for? Isn't that what he's desiring? Isn't that what we want? When we're scorned, don't we want to be healed? When we're stabbed in the back, 
Don't we want the balm of God's merciful touch? When we've experienced those deep verbal cuts, don't we want God to come and just give us amnesia? Just to just strip that experience from our memory? Don't we want God to heal us so that when we go to work or where we walk into that family gathering around every corner, it doesn't feel like there's an elephant in the room? We want mercy. And so thrice the pilgrim cries out for mercy. There's a sort of desperation in the voice of the pilgrim. But there, there is desperation. But he knows that mercy's coming. He knows it's coming. And we know it's coming too. Because we know the end of the story. In the book of Hebrews, our author, in many ways, plagiarizes this psalm. Right? Steals aspects and themes of this very psalm in chapter 12. You could think of it as an echo of Psalm 123 in Hebrews chapter 12. There's three threads. You're going to see them right away, right away. We read of the first thread. The author of Hebrews tells Christians to fix their eyes on Jesus. We just sang about it. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Second thread. Jesus was scorned. Scorned on our behalf. As it relates to our relationship with God, we're not the victim. We're not those that have been scorned. God did not scorn us. We, in our sins, scorned God. And so Jesus became the author and perfecter of our faith by dying on a cross a cursed cross in our place. And having experienced that scorn, the scorn of death, there's a third thread. Jesus then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He not only sympathizes with our scorn, he not only takes away the scorn of our sin against God, he is the enthroned one. Jesus himself ascended to the right hand of God. He is enthroned, interceding on our behalf right now. He is our access to God right now. He's king. And he's the merciful king who pours out mercy in abundance. The author of Hebrews then finishes his thought by telling Christians to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. This is the hope for the weary and scorned soul. It's the hope of the gospel. To look at Christ. To to cast our eyes and vision on God. And God's Son who endured the scorn of a cross who endured our scorn on our behalf whose mercy then flows from that hill that hill called Calvary now Benny in this season maybe in this season you're you literally can in like the first person 
pray as the, the pilgrim prayed, Lord, I've had more than enough contempt. Like it's just too much. Maybe that's your prayer right now. Maybe you're experiencing that sort of prayer right now. Enough is enough. Well, there is mercy that flows when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, but God's mercy continues to flow. Keep crying out for God's mercy. One of your most repetitive prayers that you should just put in your prayer pocket is, Lord, have mercy. And keep praying it. Keep crying out for for the Lord's mercy. Because the Lord's mercy comes to us. It, It comes in many forms. Sometimes the Lord's mercy comes to us as Christians. It, it comes to the church by, by, by healing, by, by maybe vindicating our name, our reputation. Sometimes it works like that. Sometimes God's mercy comes in that form. But most often it doesn't come in that form, does it? Most often God's mercy comes in the form of strength. Strengthening the Christian to persevere in the midst of contempt and scorn. That's how God's mercy most often comes to us. By the strength that God gives to us to forgive those who don't even ask for forgiveness. To love those who are really hard to love. To, 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 to love our enemies. To, to love those who have said things that hurt us and wounded us. Wounded us so much that our name, our reputation will never be vindicated. When we have the strength to do that, and when you see that, and I'm guessing you guys have seen that, right? You, you've seen friends, you've seen brothers and sisters who just experience this well of God's mercy, and they can, in the midst of being made fun of and mocked, can turn that mockery and can smile and say, I love you. I forgive you, I forgive, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. That is God's mercy to us. So let me just kind of close by going back to the the big idea. Contempt, scorn, it's painful. It is a form of persecution, but that, that contempt, that scorn, it can be eclipsed as you turn your eyes to God and see the mercy that flowed down from his son on Calvary. Let's pray. God, we, we, we pray, Lord, that whatever experience or whatever season we find ourselves in, whatever's going on inside of our hearts and souls, whatever emotions and feelings, we pray that those feelings and emotions wouldn't rain us, but they would push us into a vision, into to turning our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we, we are grateful that you are a merciful God. We don't have to guess if you're going to be merciful. You are merciful. And we pray, Lord, that we would experience that mercy. Remind ourselves that mercy. Lord, we're thankful that we can sing about that mercy.